Welcome back to It's Technically Romance, where we take a look at Hallmark films from the cynical cinephile point of view. And the hopeless romantic point of view. My name is Hamilton. And I'm Stephanie. And today we have a very special episode for you all. Yes, we decided to spice things up a bit. And we sat down with the very charming and talented Neil Bledsoe. We loved him in last year's Christmas Carousel, so we were very excited to chat with him. We had such a wonderful time. Yeah, it was just a great interview, very honest and open, and we really look forward to sharing that with you all. Yes, so we hope you enjoy listening to this interview as much as we did talking with Neil. Enjoy. Enjoy. Oh, there he is. There we go. What's up? What's going up? It's good. Very, very good. Stephanie Hamilton, how are you this fine morning? We're doing wonderful. How are you, Neil Bledsoe? Uh, good. Nice. Oh, nice. Lovely to meet you all. I loved your podcast of uh, of of our of our movie. That was so kind and generous. And I was like, you guys really got it. And I was like, you guys are awesome. And I love your whole stuff. I listened to a, a few of your other uh, reviews of films. They're they're really great. So we, as you heard the podcast, we loved you in last year's. Christmas carousel and you quickly became like our favorite Hallmark Royal because you know a lot of these princes of Hallmark are very stiff and stuffy but you just brought like a whole new side to the princes so how did you come into this role how did you get involved with it and what personal like spin did you put to this character um well thank you I think the spin that I tried to put on it or how I approached it was, I, obviously I can't really relate to what it's like to be royal, but I can relate to what it's like to be privileged on a certain, on a certain level, right? And with, with privilege, where I grew up in Seattle, it feels as if you're sort of supposed to, it's like a small town in a way that you're supposed to get a white collar job after you go to the same university that your parents did and kind of that there's a a duty to uphold, like a a white collar duty, an upper middle class duty. Um, And I think a lot of those things get subverted, right? Like we no longer, you know, go to church and the Lutheran church is not something that is like as important to certainly my generation as it was to my grandparents' generation. There are, there are bits of duty in all of our lives that I try to tap into, essentially. I also had gone to art school, which I think was, there were a couple people in my family that kind of thought that that was a mistake, as if that was frivolity. And so the, the need to prove my worth through art and, and then the, the discovery of myself and my own sense of self-worth through the arts, through writing, through, and I, before I went to North Carolina School of the Arts, I actually went to another art school out in California. So I had that kind of experience. And when the, the prince is talking about this, this want to create an art school, that was something that I really kind of deeply identified with. And then the, the need to, to have a, almost like a buffer that could deal with my family, I think is like, that might be a, a darker motivation than you usually see in, in Hallmark, but it's, that was something that really cooked for me as well. And then first and foremost, I should just tell you guys, anytime I get to take a job from a British actor, I leap at the opportunity. 
I've had three chances in my life to do it. And every time I'm going to do it, I'm just, it feels like one for the home team because they always come over here and they always take our jobs. And, uh, and, and to not do like a Dick Van Dyke impression, <laughs> like, Oi, governor, um, was, it just sounded like a lot of fun, you know? And so like, I was trying to, they offered it to me and, uh, thank you, Homer. I always like working for you guys. Uh, here's my plug. Um, but, uh, they offered it to me and I was like, and I was trying to wrap my mind around it. And they, they said, here's the script, uh, let us know. They'll give it to the end of the week and see if you want to do it. Um, and uh, I was like, is money still good? And they're like, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, no, that was my motive. No, that was, <laughs> they said, uh, give us a read and let, you, let me know what you think. And I read it and I was like, this guy's supposed to be a British prince. Wait, hang on, what? Are you sure? It was like, all right, uh, I want an accent coach. I want uh, X, Y, Z. And uh, these are the things I need to do to do it well. And I think what I realized is I probably wouldn't have gotten that job had the pandemic not been. Uh, here, right? Because they would have gone off to Romania and gotten an entirely British cast. Hmm. Instead, what we had was we really, really lucked out because so I was the the Canadian quotient, even though I was spent three months of my life there. Um, but I was just Canadian enough, which is gonna be on my tombstone. <laughs> <laughs> Bledsoe, just <sighs> Canadian enough. But I um so, so we really lucked out. So we went up there. I was just Canadian enough and Rachel and I got to quarantine on this like beautiful lake. We were in a place called North Bay, Ontario, which bills itself as like the, the, basically the gates to the North. You know, it, it feels like the, to use a Game of Thrones reference, it feels like somewhere on the way to the wall, right? So we were both like quarantining on this lake and I started to ask like who we were getting in terms of uh, our support cast. And we got these amazing theater actors that were from Stratford and like just these actors that would have otherwise been doing play after play after play. The guy that played my dad had just gotten done doing Cyrano de Bergerac. Uh, he was an incredible, incredible actor. I, I think everybody on the British side of it, especially a lot of the theater people and myself realized that we're kind of playing with house money, you know, and so there is there is something that we can do that's like we can make this really special and also I haven't seen that many Hallmark films that uh, where the catharsis of character lies within the male lead rather than the female lead like that I was the the, the my prince was the one that really made the change and Lila was the person that really changed me versus the other way around usually it's just like you know, I'm like, I'm working so much and I've got to rediscover this, you know, the meaning of Christmas. And like, this was, it just kind of subverted that in a really interesting way. And so I was really excited to, to always dig down deep. And I'm like, I, I don't know, you know, frankly, I don't know if I always work on Hallmark in terms of like how I like to work because I like to, I don't like to have an easy journey. You know, I like to, like the last film I did coming home for Christmas, I really wanted to lean into the unlikability of this character. And they kept telling me to smile more. And I'm like, you've written me as like a dowdy person that does not smile that you're supposed to be intimidated by. I will smile, absolutely, but at the end of the film. And so like, I, I guess what I'm always looking for is, is a real arc that I can play. And I feel like we were able to achieve that in this film. And there was just something compelling about it. And um, yeah, that was kind of how I latched onto it and how I wanted to do it. So um, I think it's kind of maybe, I don't, um, it feels like it's rare to have a writer and an actor in one. Usually the writer focuses, you know, mainly on, on writing. As sure. an actor and a writer, how, how do you balance that? 
do you, I mean, what do you get from both that? What can you take? Uh, I, I become kind of a pain in the ass on set because I think I can write better than the writer that's there. Uh, what do I take from it? I, I think that to me, I don't know, to me, it kind of seems like it's kind of the same thing, right? It's you are doing, uh, it's storytelling. Um, I, I guess I always think about it like, um, you know, the movie Amadeus, right? Yeah. So I always think of Mozart versus, say, the lead soprano in it. And then being an actor feels like, hey, you're you're you can play the violin so well. You were such a good violin player, but you're only the first chair violin. Where it's just like when you're writing something, you're there's a bit more uh, control to it. You get to have I have I guess the whole vision. Huh. Yeah, and it's it's it, but it's wonderful sometimes to be an actor and and hop into somebody else's great writing and uh, and not have to worry about that. Do you, do you do any ad-libbing on set? You know, as a writer, you might throw in something for the character or? Yeah, and as an improver, I do that as well. Um, yeah, I, I'll tell you a story. I actually, uh, I was on a, I was doing a movie that was, um, I had flown to New York and I was sitting with my agent and I got an offer to be in a film. And uh, the offer came in and said, you've got to decide, you know, by essentially the end of the day. And it had, would start shooting the following Monday. So there was no time to really go over the script. And I saw the, the script was littered with problems. I knew it was overwritten. It wasn't a good script. And the director was very kind and gracious. And he kept saying, it's like, you know, if you feel like there's something that your character won't say, just don't say it. Or, you know, I'm, I'm very comfortable with ad-libbing. Do you want to change things? And I was like, um, this needs like a deep diagnostic. But I was like, okay, okay. And uh, I hopped in that that Monday and uh, it was kind of a disaster. I, I tried to say the script as written and I realized it's like, oh, we're not doing any, this director actually doesn't care about what's written on the page. It just kind of sounds tough. And I've been in a lot of movies like those that kind of like writers will write things that they don't necessarily think about or how it impacts the rest of the story or how it reveals character. It's just something that they're writing that sounds really cool or really tough or sounds like, yeah, my uncle used to say this. So I'll, I'll put this in there and there's no real thought to how that impacts everything else. And that's my favorite thing about writing and acting too, is like the, the reward, the, the real depth of it is in the excavation in like finding the layers that are underneath and finding all that that critical kind of the components of it, the, the cause and effect that goes back and forth, that's the real reward. And that's what we all love to do as actors. So when somebody doesn't give a about it, it's like the most painful thing in the world, right? Mm -hmm. So and so this guy was like, clearly didn't care. And I was dating, a, I was dating a, an actress who was, uh, a, had a lot, more, uh, a lot more success than I did. And I was like, oh, God, what, what should I do? And she was like, I think the only thing you can do is just focus on making each scene better. So I was like, okay, I'm gonna go in and I'm just gonna make each scene better. And, uh, and so what I did, and I was the lead of the film and I sat down and I was like, okay, okay. I just wanna kind of discuss like, you know, where we've come from and where we're gonna go. And then we'll kind of find the beats because we don't need to say this, we don't need to say this. Consequently, I ad-libbed a ton. And, and there was like, I was making up my own lines and I was like, man, this is, this might actually be pretty good. And, but there's like, um, you know, when you, you, when you're talking to somebody in like everyday speech versus saying a line, you know, you don't say, nobody's out there running around saying uh, to be or not to be right. They're like, uh, you know, to be or whatever, uh, you know, to not to be right. 
And so when you have this kind of naturalistic speech pattern, it might feel and, and sound really kind of great and might feel like, oh, this is, this is really great until you get in the ADR room and you've got to match what you've done, which is like this quadruple interrupted line. So sometimes uh, ad-libbing has, has boned to be on movies like that, but particularly I think my sensibility is a little, uh, is a little naughtier than, than Hallmark wants me to be. So I'll, uh, I'll get in trouble there too. I, I, one that I tried to slip in that I was so, I was so miffed that I didn't get it into uh, Christmas Carousel was this little girl uh, says, uh, I, I think she turns around and she says, you know, every, every holiday is Uncle Witt's favorite holiday. And I, <laughs> I desperately wanted to say, listen, babe, if loving Christmas is wrong, I don't want to be right. And, <laughs> and they didn't want that. They didn't want that in there. That's great. No, but this is the mistake I made is like, I, I didn't know how that was bad or anything, but um, I could see the director kind of going like every idea I would have. He was like, oh God, please, just another movie. I just, I don't want to have this fight with the network, please. Neil, just say the line, please. But that was the only one that I, that I like, I think that I tried to get approval for the rest of them I just said. Uh, and actually Christmas Carols are littered with, uh, with improv. I've got a pitch that I've given to Hallmark and we'll see if we can all get it made. It's called Stepfather Christmas. And it's um, Santa Claus is unfortunately at a massive coronary and I'm Mrs. Claus's new husband and all the elves, uh, you know, they just, they, they basically, they haven't processed the grief and trauma and they, they keep telling me you're not my real Santa. And at the end of it on Christmas Eve, we all kind of like, pitch in together and we make Christmas happen. I don't know if you're joking, but I love this. And I want to see this film right now. Like, let's, let's make this happen. Let's make this film happen. It's amazing. Well, that was going to be my question. What, what screenplay would you write for yourself? Um, uh, you've already thought about it, obviously. Stepfather Christmas, or I had another <laughs> one that I, I desperately want to do. Like, a, I don't know if it'll work on Hallmark, but it's, it's if Werner Herzog insists on making a, it makes a, a Hallmark film, but he insists on making it at the North Pole. <laughs> and it becomes, essentially it becomes Fitzcarraldo, but, but with Christmas in the Arctic. No, I don't think that would, that would work on Hallmark. I don't think that would be a Hallmark one. <laughs> no, but that's my sensibility. Um, and who I don't would know. your what, scene partner be? Um, Jessica Lowndes, easily. Jessica Lowndes is my is my scene partner forever. Um, only because I, I recently just saw that she was in that Will Ferrell, Kristen Wiig, Lifetime send-up movie that they did as well, which I was like, that's brilliant. That is absolutely brilliant. Or I would do the, uh, the I got to find the name of it, but whatever the Knives Out, like Danica McKellar kind of like uh, mystery movie is, that's what I would do. With Danica. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> yes, but I would be her sister. <laughs> Oh, nice twist. Yeah, right. Um, you've mentioned, you know, uh, theater a little bit. And it seems like, you know, when you have uh, an actor that was well-versed in theater, is well-versed in theater, uh, there, there's a difference there. What do, what do you think it is about mm. kind of going up through the theater as opposed to not going through the theater for an actor? You mean just in generally? Mm -hmm. uh, I think it's about the system that we have in this country versus other countries. Um, my training, I, so for those listening at home, uh, I got a BFA in, in theater. And what that means is I didn't just learn how to act. It's like, I'm learning all the components 
of acting. I'm learning ballet. I'm learning how to sword fight. I'm like, you know, I'm like a, a certified stage combatant. I can, I can cert, I don't know what it means. Cause if, if you get cast in that play, they have to teach you anyway. It's not like, wait, are you certified? It's not like having a motorcycle license. So there are all these components that they taught us like mask, improv, dance, uh, elocution, uh, the theater. And like, those were all things that we might have needed to do repertory theater, right? If I was doing Hamlet, uh, one play, and then I was doing uh, A Winter's Tale, the next, and then I was like, you know, playing Biff Lohman the, the next night, like I would have to have different ways that I could, that I could approach each role, different tools, and inevitably I would be in different theaters, right? I would be <clears throat> in, the, in the small black box one night or the big 500 or a thousand seat proscenium the next. And all of those things would require different skill sets that, that I have. Now, most of our jobs and like most of the jobs that, that these schools were preparing people for were those theater jobs. You used to cut your teeth and then you would get, you work regionally, then you work off Broadway, you'd work Broadway, and then Hollywood would come calling and you'd go sell out and then become Orson Welles fat and doing Paul Masson wine ads drunk off your ass. That's the, the arc of Hollywood, right? So when I got out in 2005, it was already deep within a shift and a change. And primarily the jobs that, that we all get is you get TV jobs. And some other things have kind of happened that um, I mean, technology, like you and I are, you're in Charlotte, North Carolina, I'm in New York City, we're, we're having a conversation that technology kind of enables. Well, what that also enabled is that enabled a theater actor, you know, that really loved to do theater, like Anne Hathaway, for instance, is a movie star, but she can live in New York City. She doesn't have to be meeting producers out in Beverly Hills. She can live here, but she can also sell tickets in New York City. So that kind of subverted the system in this really kind of weird inverted pyramid where you almost had to have more TV and film credits before you could then come and do theater. And that's not true for everybody. I mean, there are some theater actors that would desperately love to do film and TV, but for a lot of the stuff that I was going out for, that's kind of, that currency was king. And so I think what that creates is, it creates a different system of training. Uh, a lot of times in TV and film, you're just, especially in TV, you're taught to just be yourself. You're taught to just kind of, just say the line as you would, just throw it away, throw it away, throw it away. What does that mean? I mean, you're, you can say throw it away all day long and sound naturalistic. But if there's no intention behind it, you don't really know what you're doing. And what you're learning in theater is like, you're learning two things, right? With a play, you have, it's not something that has been written, R-I-T-E, it has been wrought, right? So it's a play right. And what that means is that it's, it is solid. It has been figured out. You are there not to suggest new things or to improv or to, or to like play with a line as you do in TV and film, which is like those scripts are always changing up to the very minute. I mean, to, to Casablanca, they were like rushing pages, you know, to the set so they could film right then. Um, so there's, there's a certain sense of solidity when you're when you open Othello and you see this play and you go like my god like this is this is bigger than me I'm 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 connecting to to you know Laurence Olivier and Edmund Keane through this is like we are all we've all looked at this same script right and so I think what that does is that creates a sense of I have to 
bring myself, I have to bring myself to the role. I have to discover what this is versus in film and TV so often with these films, especially you bring the role to you. You know, you just kind of, you see, I, I think it would be fair to say, you see a lot of people do the same thing over and over again and it works for a lot of people. But that kind of acting has never been something that I've really been interested in. I, my, the dean of my school before I left uh, from school, he was like, he had cast me as this old man in a play. And I was like this old Irish mayor. And he was like, look, I, 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 you're not gonna be the lead. And I was like, what? And I was like, hurt. And I was like, oh, God, why? And he said, you're not, you're not going to be the lead. I was like, why? And he said, um, well, because you're going to be playing yourself for 20 years after you leave this place. And I was like, and I'm coming up on 16. But I was like, you, old man. I'm going to do it my own way. And like, <laughs> I really, I, so I, I have tried to have that kind of career outs after I got out of school. And I don't know if it's always worked for me. I think if I just kind of, played a brooding hunk, it would probably be easier on myself and I wouldn't be getting in my own way quite as much. But I think I have a lot more fun doing it my way. But to, to, to I guess to succinctly answer your question, what's the difference between the two? It's Daniel Day-Lewis to Tom Cruise. You know, it, it, it is both of them. Tom Cruise is probably a bigger star and can, or Ryan Reynolds. Ryan Reynolds is a great example. Ryan Reynolds is, there are very few people that can match that kind of charm and sophistication. And he is great at what he does, but he's always Ryan Reynolds or The Rock is always The Rock. But that's not the kind of stuff that I always really wanted to do. I would much rather do you know, if you look at old Richard Burton stuff or like Peter O'Toole, I guess Peter O'Toole is always kind of Peter O'Toole, isn't he? But, but there is, um, I think I always wanted to be the kind of actor that could disappear into a role and be somebody else inside of somebody else's great words rather than just a glorified version of myself on TV. And in the theater, I can do that in TV that is increasingly difficult to find. That is, that is the most honest answer. I, I, I like, I love that. Absolutely love that. You have had quite, you know, a filmography, you know, you've done film, TVs and everything uh, from like Sex and the City 2 to The Old Spice Man. That's right. Which I found your commercial. Oh, I've got a couple. I've actually got an Olympic commercial as well. Really? Oh yeah, you got to look that up. I wear a Speedo. <laughs> well, I loved The Old Spice one, by the way. But do you have like a favorite role that stands out or is there like a favorite type of character that you like to, to play? I like to play Bugs Bunny. I think when I was a kid, I really wanted to be Bugs Bunny because he was, he was just having a lot of fun. No, I, I, don't, I don't think I have had, <clears throat> I don't think I have had a really, truly, truly favorite role. I, I mean, some things feel, feel great. Um, like playing Max Whitford on Shameless was, um, was a role that I really, really loved uh, because that was that was a, also a role that I got to improv a ton on and got to got to really feel feel as if I was kind of moving a scene and like not just there to support somebody else. Um, too often, I'll, I'll tell you, I'll actually use the name of the show. So I've done four soap operas. I did every single soap opera in New York City. This will be a bit of a, a bit of a tangent, but we'll come back to your question, I swear. So I did all four soap operas in New York City. And I always thought that these, these were going to be the kind of jobs that were like sustaining me to get somewhere else. And a lot of my career has felt like jobs that I've taken 
where I'm like, okay, well, this is, this is fine. I'm, I know I'm going to do Hamlet on, on roller skates soon. So, you know, I'm, I'll just wait. And this is, this is my mercenary job until I get to the thing. And then you start to realize that like, oh no, this is, this is a career. This is, this is my career. I'm not waiting for something else. It's like, it's like you almost wake up one day with like the, yeah, I'm sure you've seen your perpetually single friends go, it's like, yeah, but I'm waiting for like that one woman. She's like, you know, she's a swimsuit model and a neurosurgeon and like, she's not going to find you in Huntsville, Alabama, friend. Like you, ha you have to venture out a little bit more. So I did all four soap operas in New York City. And the, it was my second job ever was um, on Guiding Light. And uh, I was playing Quinn Matthews, Man About Town. And I was like, I was this really rich guy. I was like, how does a rich person talk? And I was like, because I, I knew like wealthy-ish people in Seattle, but I didn't know really, really wealthy people. So I took a bunch of catering jobs so I could like, I don't know, look at the rich people up close in New York City. And, um, and I just came up with this voice and that I was like, Hey, babe, I'm, I'm Quinn Matthews. I'm a man about sound, but they've run out of malt and you're taking the few possessions you own to sell at market with some magic beans. And I remember one of my friends <laughs> thought on the first day that I did it, and he just looked at me and said, Ahoy, Paloy. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so I did that. And, and then I played a baby stealing lawyer on, uh, on As the World Turns, named Gary Bradshaw. I was like, you can't make these names up. Also, sidebar, I was Bob Marley in Coming Home from Christmas. And the fact that they didn't clock the fact that Robert Marley like goes to Bob Marley pretty easily is, is beyond me. So then I played a baby stealing lawyer on, on As the World Turns. Like, listen, babe, we're going to chew everything that you want. And I always kind of thought, like, who's the only person I know that's watching these shows? Like, oh, it's my dad, because he was out of work and he's you know, just kind of a bit of a rascal. So I was like, I'm going to make choices that my dad will really love. <laughs> sort of. And, and so I kind of approached, I boned myself a little bit because I would kind of approach them as if I was like in an SNL skit doing, <laughs> doing it. But they were fun for me to do it that way. And then I showed up on all my children and uh, I was, I think I was playing a good hearted doctor. And I remember two things about it. One, that I got to say the classic line of, uh, of like, doctor, I just want to let you know these last two weeks have meant the world to me watching you work. It's just something like so unbelievably sincere. But my favorite bit was when I left for lunch one day and I had like a half hour and I was wearing uh, my OR scrubs and this white lab coat and a little like name tag. And I ran to like a grocery store to get a little deli case thing. And I, I was like, my mind was somewhere else. And I think I was like looking at something off to the register and I heard the beep, beep, beep as she was like putting things through the scanner. And eventually that beep slowed down with beep, beep. And I look up and she's looking at me quixotically and I've got this heavy cake makeup on that they've used on the sub. And she says, are you a doctor? <laughs> And I smile and I say, nah, girl, but I do play one on TV. <laughs> and, um, and then, but, but the, all right, but in a long rambling story as my stories usually are, this is the point. So my last soap that I ever did was, uh, I think it was uh, One Life to Live, O-L-T-L. And um, I show up and, uh, <laughs> and, and I'd been in and I was like toying and like, dark God, do I sell out? Do I go do this? 
do I do this soap opera? I don't know. All right. Well, and then I would like, I'd go in and I wouldn't get the role. And then I would like, and I was like, I don't really want to do this anyway. And finally they just offered me something. And they like, my manager said, it's a recurring part. You're going to be on it for a while. You're part of like the mayor's storyline or something. So I go in and I sign my contracts and uh, they're like, yeah, sure enough, recurring part. And, and I get a call from the, from the costume department and they're like, Hey, uh, Neil, we're just wondering if you can, uh, do you have any like khakis or like a, a button down you can bring? And just for those who don't know, anytime that a show that makes millions of dollars wants you to bring in your own wardrobe, it's, a, it's an extraordinarily bad sign. It means you're not going to be there long. And I'm like, and I'm like, uh, no, but guys, I'm, I'm a recurring character. Uh, not, not that we see here. It's like, no, guys, I'm, I'm a recurring character. I'm going to be in there for a while. It's like, uh, okay, well, you know, well, it probably just more mistakes. So I get there and they, I say no, that I don't have what they're looking for. And they dress me like Tucker Carlson. <laughs> and I have like khakis on, a blue Oxford, a bow tie with matching suspenders. And my hair is supposed to be like this. And I'm like, I look like a dip. And I realized, and I look at this, the script and like, I am the mayor's aide that has been in the, been in this office. And I'm supposed to just basically a cop kind of comes in and says, hey, get down, get down. And there's like another cop there. My whole purpose as a character is to make these other guys look tough. And I'm like, oh, how can I have some fun with this? And I was like, well, what if it's like, what if they're the ninth law enforcement agency to come in there that day? <laughs> and, I'm, and I'm actually just getting a little bit tired of it. And I'm like, ugh. <laughs> and, but my point is with that is like that, Kind of oftentimes, especially in TV, you were being written in as an afterthought. Uh, there's there was this actor that once told me when I was on SVU, I was and I was like I had some credits under my belt, but I wasn't like just first starting out. And uh, and I was like, hey man, it's really nice to meet you. And uh, you know, kind of a younger actor, and I'm trying to figure this out. You've and he was like somebody you'd done a lot. You would know absolutely know his name, but I'm not going to throw him under the bus. Christopher Walken. No, I'm not. <laughs> no, it's not Christopher Walken. I wish it was. It was like, it was like no, my God. Um, no, he says, uh, he was like, uh, let me give you a bit of advice. You know, when you get hired to play bus driver number two, be the best bus driver number two you can be. Don't try to be bus driver number one. And I was like, already in my head as I'm listening to him, it's like, I want to pour this hot coffee on your head. <laughs> what, a, what a jerk. But I think the point I'm trying to illustrate is so many times you're being asked not to be yourself. You're being there to kind of show how cool the other character is. And it like makes it very, very hard to make a choice that feels really satisfying. With something like Shameless, you get to, when you can do both, when you can be this, you can be the, 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 the character that Emmy needs you to be, but then you can also be something completely different and you can kind of move the story in your own way. That's where it really gets satisfying. That's where TV can really be satisfying. And I haven't had as many of those opportunities as I would have loved to. And I think part of the difficulty is, you know, you get, um, you're asked not to do that as much as you can because look these these are big entities that you that the producers don't want to mess with and even if you do kind of improv a lot they're just going to cut around you and and, and that one other difference too to kind of go back to your earlier question with the difference between tv and theater is is this too think about the time you spend acting when you're doing a play 
you're there every day for eight hours a day. And then once you open, it's eight shows a week doing the same thing, like really hashing down just the minutia of what it is. You can't do that with, with TV and film. And like, I've had a, I would say I'm in, I've, I've had an extraordinarily lucky career and, and a really successful career, but the amount of days that I work in a given year, like really I'm, I'm doing my job, not, not auditioning for my job, maybe like, maybe 60, you know, maybe, but if I'm doing a play I could, you know, that's 60 days just to, just for rehearsal, you know what I mean? And so there's, there is a, I guess what I have not really achieved in my career that I really wanted to is, is a sense of, is a sense of really a character to call my own, you know? And that's something that I'm frankly still kind of looking for. Yeah, I'm a long-winded man. No, it's just, it's just really touching to hear that, like a character you can call your own. <laughs> no, honestly, I like that. Right, right. Well, you know, it's it's true. I think, like, look, you one of the, one of the things that I wrote about. We stay at this, and every single one of those actors that is in a Hallmark film. And some people, Hallmark's a really interesting place, right? Because it's like a lot of people, like Danica, loves doing Hallmark films. Absolutely loves it. Loves it, and that's her career. She doesn't audition for other stuff. And there are people that are like exclusively in that ecosystem. Right. They're just that is what they do. Then there are people that kind of there are people that do other stuff. Teddy Sears is somebody that like a dear friend of mine that goes off and does kind of, you know, he's he's does a bunch of he was just doing the Ryan Murphy stuff. Um, And then he'll come in and do uh, like a Hallmark uh, or a Lifetime or a Netflix uh, holiday movie. And so I think all of these actors are all looking for that thing and everybody has in their mind that that oscar speech you know that kind of that character that they're going to do it and and when you're young you know in your 20 you say it's like oh you know james dean didn't make it until he was like whatever 24 or something and then when you hit 25 you say ah paul newman didn't really make it until he was 30 and that number keeps getting kicked up until you go it's like well you know james cromwell didn't really make it until he was 70 and like the the goalposts keep getting moved farther and farther away. And it was one of the things that made me really want to write uh, about this Arena League team that I uh, that I spent time with is because it was that question of like, how much further do you, how long do you keep chasing your dreams once they seem to be running away from you? You know, if it's wow. not a fixed point, but it's like something that is truly kind of just elusive like how long do you chase it and so the idea is is like you know oh brian cranston you're just this great journeyman actor and then you kind of uh somebody discovers you and chris carter or vince gilligan sees you in one episode of the x files and then puts you in breaking bad and you're off to the races well that may well be and you know the the i think the advice that older actors always give to younger actors is like, just stay in it, stay in it. And you'll, you'll get you, the business will come around. And or Steve Martin will say, you know, you have to be so good that, uh, that they can't say no to you. And I don't know if that's true. I don't know if that's really fair because I've seen some of the most talented people I know are not the people that are getting the shots. You know, mm-hmm. it's just like, that's to say that also just would assume that it's a talent Olympics that, um, that this is something that is, that's all entirely within our control. And so I, I think every single one of us is looking for a character that we can call our own. And, um, and, some, and, and some people aren't, you know, really, truly. Some people 
really just love to show up at red carpet events and, and have a nice life and ride motorcycles and take pictures of themselves looking really cool. And God bless them. Uh, the world needs emotional ditch diggers too. But that's not necessarily, I think for those of us who are in it and like really in quest of something, um, something greater, um, something to like leave behind, you know, something that could like inspire other people to do, to make the same decisions, then it's, the bar has to be higher. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Like I, I'm, I'm just blown away. Like, honestly, like, (laughs) thank you. Yeah, my pleasure. Uh, I have a question though, actually, you you mentioned there was a lot of ad lib on, on Christmas to carousel. Yeah. Was, First of all, what was your favorite ad lib, if you can remember which one? And then second follow-up, <laughs> oh, was was String Bean an ad lib when he called? String uh, Bean was not an ad lib. No, no, okay. no, no. String Bean was not an ad lib. But my favorite ad lib involved her. Um, there, was, there was a button that I really wanted to work in. And uh, my, favorite, my favorite little bit that I always would have uh, with Stuart, who played Lila's dad. And Stuart was f- a fantastic actor. He, uh, he, like when our scenes painting the carousel, I had this idea that, that my prince really, really loved being a blue collar worker because that's not something that like he got to do at any other time. So like I had, would have these lines like just see tomorrow Roy or something like that. But I wanted to, to really ground it in this idea of like, no, I'm really enjoying it. So, so it became like, see you tomorrow Roy. <laughs> and, um, but there was this there was this moment that we all between the three is Rachel Boston Stuart and myself like found this perfect ad lib and Don the director who's magnificent and I love so dearly and I feel like I gave almost three or four heart attacks to um, he he let us roll bless his heart and uh, we we kept going with it. And it was like, basically, it was about the wishing horse. And I was like, Oh, yes, the wishing horse. And I like, didn't believe them. And they were like, and I thought they were pulling my leg. So I one of the things I just kept it rolling. And it was a it was a three shot. So it was over the back of the two of them. And and it was on to me. And so I just kind of kept the improv going. I was like, oh, yeah, what is this wishing horse's name? And they both turned to each other. And they said a name. And I think it was like, slippy or slappy it wasn't that it was like roy or or something it was god what was it it was like bob or rob roger something like that it was something it was like a a real name and so um so that became just this glorious button and i was like oh that's so good that's so good so when it came time for the 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 reveal i asked don this is the second one i tried to clear and i was what if what if if we go and like the little girl like you know she shows oh my god i love it i love it i love it i'm gonna name him this name right this like i'm gonna name him slippy and so um so the little girl goes up and i'm like oh, I, so i got this idea i got this idea don's like no it's not gonna work it's not gonna work and i'm like and i learned from the, the last time i was like you know what i'm just gonna roll with it i'm just gonna do it i'm not gonna get it improved and so i went up to the little girl tessa who's a little sweetheart who hated me after i did this and so i said to them, so i spoke to don this is what he wants you to so glorious shot like we're losing time and light and that's the shot of the film right it's just like it's all lit up it looks it looks like a courier and ives like tin of cookies and uh and so this little girl says oh my god oh my god a wishing horse i'm gonna name him slippy (laughs) everybody's like 
<laughs> was that? And it was like, yes, yes, yes. It was like, everybody, come on. Um, and, uh, and then we go and we ride the carousel and, and uh, you know, Christmas is all, Don comes up, no, God, no, no, no. And says, sweetheart, sweetheart, Tessa, don't say that, no. And Tessa just gives me like these evil eyes ever since then and, um, you know. There's a lawsuit now. I don't want to get into it. But. So what you're saying is we won't ever see you in another home movie? <laughs> you because might never see me again if I end up in the state penitentiary. Uh, no, that was that was oh, uh, that was my favorite improv line. And there are, there are a bunch. And they actually used a bunch of it in the uh, like. If I watch it, I can kind of still not go. Yeah, that was mine. That was mine. That was mine. Yeah, those are our favorite bits. We we sometimes like try to figure out what's improv. Yeah. There's two kinds of improv, right? Like the, the improv that I'm, that I'm, the first bit of improv that I gave you guys, if loving Christmas is wrong, I don't want to be right. That's, that's Neil hopping in and making a comment on the film and like, and doing it in a way to try to make other people laugh, right? I'm trying to like elicit a laugh. But the reason I loved that second improv of like the button is that I was really trying to make this, this thing work. And like, storytelling like that if you have something that seems like such a non sequitur like why the hell did this little uh, why the hell did they make such a, a you know hill of beans about naming this horse a certain name and then you just get this little girl like that it, it it says the same thing it is like the magic of the meringue just kind of perfectly hanging and mm -hmm. being perfectly brown it's it's you know it's the coup de gras right it is that moment that it rewards you for paying attention earlier in the film. So those are two different kinds of improv. But then a third kind of improv is like, let's say a scene isn't working and you've got you've to kind of like explore the emotional reality of what this is. Now, oftentimes the reason that Hallmark writers, I don't think really like improv is that those scripts have always gone through a very careful vetting process to make sure that nothing is going to be taken out of context, that it kind of fits the formula, that it fits the brand, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Well, I think a great writer and like a well-written script, like an actor can take that. And I think the improv just adds to it because mm -hmm. they feel like, oh, well, this script is already so well-written. I feel like I really know this character. So you can sort of like take that and riff off of mm -hmm. it, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I, I, right, exactly. It's like the difference between, look, sometimes you're, you're playing, to use a music reference, sometimes you're playing three chord pop. Um, sometimes you're, you wouldn't dream of improving in the middle of Beethoven's Ninth. <laughs> but if you were, but if you had a jazz ensemble playing Beethoven's Ninth, you're there for the improv, right? Yeah. So it's just it's about the the, the platform and the medium of it. So this is a question that we usually ask people. But if you weren't acting, well, I guess you do writing also. Is there like another profession that you would be interested in doing? You have other. I'd be in the CIA. What would I be doing? I would be. Let's say if I wasn't a storyteller. Um, what would I be doing? Which is also difficult because like, you know, you guys are storytellers. We're all storytellers. Uh, when I was a kid, I really wanted to be, I wanted to work in advertising because I was, I was shrewd and cynical. I also wanted to be a poet and a zoologist. Um, what would I be doing? You know, a, poet, a, a zoologist poet? Is that what you wanted to be? Yeah. I wanted, when I was a, when I was a kid, I really wanted to be a zoologist and a poet. Okay. Um, like just because I, I was like spent a lot of time in the mountains as a kid and I would uh, I, 
I've been writing poetry since I was like eight. Um, and um, so I wanted to do that. I once cried to my brother watching a documentary about astronauts that I desperately wanted to be an astronaut. And then I realized how much math was involved and that wasn't an option for me. And then uh, what else? I, you know, I, I, I don't know. I, I would probably be, honestly, I'd probably lean more into my journalism career or I'd work for the CIA, you know? And who says that I don't? I was gonna say. Yeah. We don't know that he doesn't already. Now, that, now that's, yeah. a, that's a script for a Hallmark movie right there. We're a CIA agent who's like, this is my cover. Right? Yeah, yeah, there you go, <laughs> right there. Yeah, why are you at a like a fan convention in Sochi, Russia? I was like, I'm just, I don't know, I love my fans. <laughs> um, I'm curious about a, one item we talked about it in, in the podcast is the blue cardigan that your character wears while painting. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about the blue cardigan for me? Why your character would wear a blue cardigan while painting? Because that to me just just stuck out. I, I love the blue cardigan. We both love the blue cardigan. And the bandana. There was the bandana. Oh, thank you very much. Yeah, that I wanted to bring a little bit of uh, hipster reality to it. I felt like I just needed to look like, I, like, I don't know if he's a prince or he's a barista in Portland, maybe, <laughs> who knows? Um, I don't think it will be throwing anybody under the bus by saying we ran into some problems with the costume department on this on this on this movie, and there were some there were some things that just defied belief and credulity. That one of which is that I would um, that I would the the customer kept insisting that I would be cold. And I was like, why am I wearing anything? Like, why am I wearing anything like an outer layer when I'm painting? I'm going to get paint on it. I was like, no, but you'll be cold. Like we've, we've talked about it. It's, we're, we're supposed to like sell the cold and also the painter. I was like, all right, then this has to be like my painter cardigan. This has to be like, like it's full Rothko and I'm just going to have paint all over the place. And like that, this is how I, this is like my painting cardigan, right? And so that ultimately became the decision and they like they first kind of peddled me out in and i think you know like a lot of a lot of the people the hallmark is very very particular about their look and their their the brand and what they want and so i think this customer was really afraid of kind of like running afoul of the network and needed things that like approved but so when i first came out i didn't have any paint on me and i was like this is idiotic why i'm a painter these are my painting clothes and you've got me like i've just like i've walked out of hot topic in the mall or something i need paint on me and i was like going into these painting scenes and they i i had to kind of i just had to kind of go like all right we need to get paint i need more paint i need this scuffed i need this need this to look like this and so I think the look I had as the painter was like me running around the costume truck in a panic 20 minutes before we shot the scenes like that, 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 great, cool, scuff it all, I'll get changed on set, great, oh, mic me up, okay, we need to go. And then you're dealing with COVID protocol. It was like, it was, uh, yeah, it was, it was a challenge. Um, so like that cardigan was just something that we were like, all right, you want me to, I have to be warm and I have to wear like a coat, all right, then it's going to have paint on it. So then it just became this beloved sort of grandfatherly thing, you know? And if I could have a pipe in it, in one of the scenes, I would do that too. <laughs> oh my gosh, that would have just That would have sealed the deal the right there. Right, exactly. Did you get to like keep anything from the set like that cardigan? 
possibly the king's throne, that like lavish throne. What do you think I'm sitting in now? Um, no, no, what did I keep? I don't think I kept anything. Um, you didn't keep the wishing horse slippy? No, oh God, that would, no, because the wishing horse was like, lives in North Bay, Ontario. That was like, one of the cool things about that was that they, they found this, North Bay has like two old carousels. Um, they have one that, well, I guess they have one contemporary one that's like this beautiful children's carousel that's all inside that some of the most like, it just looks like a, <clears throat> a, a fairy tale book come to life. This other one is I think from the early 20th century, like 1910s and it's clearly like sort of the pride and joy of the town. And all of the kind of like candy cane, um, gingerbread cookie edifices that we would put there and kind of like that this kingdom absolutely like monetizes itself through Christmas. <laughs> like I kept trying to figure out also like what the GDP was and like also that the fact that my uncle, the, the Archduke was like, that he was the, the defense minister. And I was like, it was like the small, it's like being the defense minister of Luxembourg or something. It's like <laughs> more of an honorary title, let's be honest. So this carousel was like underneath all that stuff were all these like pictures of people doing things in North Bay. It was like, uh, it was like sod busters driving cattle through frozen ground or like people in like snow cats or snowmobiles or, uh, or like ice fishing or ice skating. So it was like, it was beautiful to see that about North Bay because it was like, as much as we were putting something on top, but underneath this carousel was also telling the story of a town. So I guess what I'm saying is I took away the memories. Um, no, what am I, what am I saying? Um, uh, no, I love that. Yeah, you took the memories, <laughs> took the memories, yeah, right here. Um, no, I don't think I, I don't think I kept anything because there was a lot of like V-neck sweaters and things like that, that I was like, I don't, this is so not who I am. You don't, you don't rock the deep V? You don't rock the deep V? I rock a deep V, but not a deep V merino wool sweater. Um, <laughs> that, you know, that's sort of like, and I think that there was a, there was a thread that they were trying to sort of, they kept mentioning um, uh, Prince Harry and Meghan Markle. That is kind of what I was like, oh, that doesn't seem interesting to me at all. Cause that's just like, isn't it so odd as Americans that we we like celebrate the fact that we fought this war, this revolution to rid ourselves of a monarchy, and yet we're so fascinated with it. We kind of like, we, we yearn for them like children of a divorce. We're kind of like, we want them back, you know, and then we keep trying to make our own. We're like, oh, you're not right. You know, you're not my real king. And so that idea of like who, you know, who a king was and who a prince was, was like, yeah, I, went, I guess I wanted to do something different. What did I keep? What was there? Um, God, I don't know. No, I don't, I don't think I kept anything. Except the memories. Except the memories. Except the memories. There are a few other burning questions um, that we, and I'm sure the listeners really need to know. And that is, where exactly is Encadia? That is a deep V question. <laughs> um, where is Encadia? We're trying to figure this out. All right, so it's a mountainous country, and yet our delicacy is some fish dish. So it's gotta be like the Orkneys, or and like everybody speaks with a British accent, so it's gotta be like, I think what we kind of imagined is that we were sort of Monaco in the British Isles. Okay. You know, that we were like, that's kind of where we were. We were like, just kind of tucked. So like we were in the English channel somewhere and we happened to be very mountainous or, you know, um, 
but it's large enough that like, you know, we've got to send the plane to get a train or something like that. Or yeah, I, I man, I don't know. An alternate reality. Um, where did that like exist? That. Yeah. There was like, there was, it was like Switzerland at a certain kind of like, but then we also like ate Ludafisk or something. It was, it was ludicrous. It was just strange. <laughs> so yeah, I don't know. Uh, and shockingly, I did not do that. I did not make those decisions because <laughs> I didn't think it mattered. It matters to us and to the listeners. I got you. Oh, well then listen, you know where Ancadia really is? It lives in the heart. Yeah. That's right. Right here. Right here. <laughs> Christmas carousel to another go around. Hey. Don't don't tease us. Don't tease us. <laughs> you got the pitch ready. I know you have the pitch ready. We'd love to watch it. We'd love to watch it. Thanks very much. You know, I should say that like one of my favorite things about this is Rachel Rachel Boston was really really wonderful, and I loved acting with her. And she's such a a great present partner. We have two very 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 different ways of working. And I loved working with her. Uh, I think I drove her nuts a little bit with my constant improv, but, um, but she loves to work. And she like, we found really like a really wonderful kind of happy meeting. So my favorite thing is Rachel and I built up this really kind of strange chemistry because we were both quarantined together in Canada for like two weeks as we sat there um in quarantine both of us were isolated on the same lake and we could see each other across the lake but we weren't so we'd like call and we we would go over the script and we'd talk and it gave me a lot of time to kind of to really digest the script and so if you remember that throne room scene was the big reveal of the prince and so what i thought was like it's always talking my king we literally have just had a scene where the king says oh you know where's the prince he's so late he's the he's really got to start caring about his royal duties and i was like all right well if we just set that up wouldn't it be funny if i'm late for this meeting and i literally have to come running in and so don set up this magnificent shot that the thing was such a big room and i literally had to come like sprint like a pa would cue me from another room and i would come sprinting in with a suit hop up on the stage and then time it perfectly to spin like a top and kind of like have my arm hanging over it and i, and I like i think i cocked one heel so i could kind of like turn around like i was in a like a doo-wop band from the 50s and like turn around and just nail it at the right time you were um, out of breath. You looked like you broke a little sweat when you yeah, yeah, landed. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like Leonardo DiCaprio, I just like the audience to know that I'm acting. And um, you did a lot yeah. of running in that movie, actually. Yeah, right. It's like it's like me and Tom Cruise always running. <laughs> like, I think when he came out with his Instagram channel, I think he was um, uh, what Tom Cruise, and it was like the little bio said, running in movies since 1982. And I was like, oh, that's brilliant. I'll slow clap that to that Scientologist <laughs> man. Um, so oh, much yeah. like Tom Cruise, you do your own stunts. That's right. I yeah. actually, I, as much as I can, I actually do do my own stunts. And I do stunts of the heart as well. I, you know, I really do fall in love there. I don't use a stunt double. Um, <laughs> so, so we, so those were, those were these moments in the script that we like found that we just got to both kind of tease and make this thing really wonderful. And I think, you know, part of the part of the thing that actors have to realize, writers have to realize, and that like, that the, you know, the network has to realize is we're all and the directors too, and but young actors, especially have to realize this is like, everybody's trying to make the best thing they can. 
And there are reasons for decisions that have been made. And if sometimes you earn a change, sometimes you don't. And if somebody can kind of explain, say, hey, that's not going to work because this X, Y, Z. But one of the things I really deeply loved about this process was to sit with Rachel and just make the script the, the best we could be. And it's not that it was like not good to begin. It was great. And then otherwise we wouldn't have said yes and attached ourselves to, to it. It's like what we're trying to do at that point is just like, you know, it's like other minds kind of looking at the same problem. We just see it from a different angle. It's like, oh, I see what you're trying to do. If we get rid of this and highlight this, I think it's really going to shine, right? Because th that whole scene exists kind of like for the reveal, Lila's surprised and I'm supposed to look like I'm semi-irresponsible. So what better way to do that than to like have me be late for my own meeting, you know? And then you kind of, and if you can pitch ideas like that, that it's just like, hey, I'm just trying to help you with your idea, which is what I was trying to do. I think they, they get accepted. And, that, and that's also kind of interesting how you're talking about, you know, that, that two weeks that you guys get to spend and go over the script. And, you know, I think that kind of showcases the chemistry that you both had on set as well. Yeah. You know, that, that extra two weeks, you know, just sort of getting to know. I think anytime you look Rachel Boston in the eyes and she's like smiling and beaming and luminescent, it, it's hard not to feel chemistry. Uh, Rachel's a magnificent actor. Um, yeah, we love and her. And she's... She's such a luminous screen presence, but also just a such a lovely person that you're, you know, she's she's like an angel descended to earth in some ways, and sort of like, you know, and you can't help but get kind of like sheepish and aw shucks when you're in her presence, and like, you know, it's just used that and use the my affection for her as a person as much as as much as I could, and then it, it but also like she, you know, she was, she was tired and working really, really hard. And some of those shots that we had were like, we're running around and some of the, the most crucial moments in the film, we were trying to get, you know, as, as we're also trying to get crew out at a certain time, not pushing overtime. So there is, I guess what I'm talking about is this is kind of sometimes how the sausage is made. And when you get really great actors that can get together that you can rely on, like Rachel, like Tom Rooney, like Stewart, like Jennifer, like Catherine Davis, and like Michael, then you get, I think you just get this kind of trust that you're like, we've just got to bang this out and we got to do it. And the great thing about shooting something is that you get to, in a rehearsal, what you're trying to do is find these moments that are really kind of interesting that teach you something about the character, right? But they're few and far between. And what you're trying to do is kind of like, bring them out more and more and more. And then you kind of craft this performance that you find through the choices that you've made. But that has been kind of sussed out over five weeks. In a film, what makes it so kind of brilliant and like exciting as a medium or in a TV show is you're rehearsing in front of a camera. And you have to trust that camera that's going to pick up everything that you're doing because it's just, it's there, it's your friend. And if like, if you cannot be intimidated by it, but trust that it's going to find something that is like, really wonderful and you don't have to sort of like look at the camera and go I love you you know because that looks psychotic right and so for the viewers at home I, I look, mean I thought it was pretty good <laughs> oh thank you very much uh, you guys should describe what I just did and then I'm going to do something but I'll do something else just describe what I just did and like how it looked and like uh he spoke to our hearts right there I mean he went close to the close to the screen looked a little I psychotic mean, our eyes were locked I right. feel like they were locked more with mine than yours, but right. I, I felt it. That's the Mona Lisa trick. Just locked with both of yours. <laughs> I'm slightly cross-eyed as well. 
No, but like, but if you, I think my point is, is if, if you can just trust that the camera is going to pick these things up is, which is what we were kind of forced to do sometimes and like really find these rehearsals. And again, that's what made this, this rehearsal time with Rachel so great and wonderful is that we, you know, we weren't finding the lines. We weren't thinking about things. We, both of us came in cold with these characters, with these lines, and we just, we were off to the races. That's incredible. And it's not always like that. And, and some people give magnificent performances when they're like literally phoning it in. And like when I was coming out of, of drama school, I thought it was like, I thought you were like going to end up in actor jail if you didn't know your lines when you came to set, you know? And then I was working with Vanessa Williams on Ugly Betty. And it was my first big job. And it was the first time I was, that was that's another job that I really loved. I really loved that job. Um, and it was like my first real kind of job. And it felt like I was a member of the club. But I was watching her kind of like do this, do these lines and she didn't have it at all. And she was still magnificent. And I was like, that's professional. That's really professional. Quick sidebar, I was so deeply in love with Vanessa Williams. And if we can somehow communicate this to her, when I was 13 years old, I bought her, I bought her album, Saving the Best for Last. And I had a fantasy that we would end up together, but I knew that she was married and that to complete this fantasy, that to actualize it, I would need to break up a happy home. I also knew that she had like two kids that I would need to be a stepfather for. And so like I would have these, I would have these like plans about having to tell the kids about rules around the Super Nintendo that I was like, I'm always first player. You could be second player. Um, I never you really told went deep. <laughs> I did. Yeah. No, I was like, I would have, I used to have like, yeah, I, I, as the child of, as a child of divorce, I had very practical sort of like late 20th century fantasies. Yeah. But, uh, you know, it's not always the case that, that people know their lines and oftentimes you'll see people just kind of struggling for something. And that's where a great editor comes in. Right. And we mm -hmm. had a, a great editor on this film as well, and they can find a performance and sometimes, but somebody like Rachel, I don't think you really needed to. She was, she was great. You know, they, they all were. It was like, we, we really lucked out in terms of our cast. Yeah. No, I, I would say so. I, we, you know, we're big fans of that movie. So I would cool. say so. Last burning question. We brought it up a few times on our podcast. Um, are the Prince costumes from Party City? The actual Prince costume? <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. <clears throat> Um, you mean the one that I wear that's my, my, no, no, good God. No. It's a running joke that we have on the podcast. Oh, like all the Prince costumes. All the Prince Everybody, costumes. They're yeah. all from Prince. No, they're from like costume warehouses that are like, you know, these things get recycled. So they like, they go and live and like the next time somebody needs a heavy woolen suit for the Archduke Ferdinand, you know, Franz Ferdinand to be assassinated in, I'm sure they'll be wearing, you know, they'll just alter what I had but I, part of the problem is is like I am I am a I'm a funny shaped man I have almost no hips I've got extraordinarily like Michael Phelps wide shoulders and I'm like very tall and lanky so oftentimes I, I wear like they to fit my arms and legs they have to find me something that is made for like a, an XL or a double XL body size, like a, you know, like, like an opera singer or something. And then they have to like cinch the thing in. So they got this thing from the costume rental shop. And for whatever reason, they decided to remove the epaulets, 
which then gave me this like slunk down because the whole thing was so heavy that it was kind of like lying on me. And I, and I like then had, and was like double breasted. I felt like I was the HMS pinafore just like running around that, that party. It was just like, excuse me, excuse me. I am the very model of a modern major general. Um, it was, it was so bizarre. So no, and then, and then of course, Rachel walks out in this like red gown that looks like she's, man, she, you know, she looks like a fairy tale. And I'm like, I am deep in reality, <laughs> like sweating my eyes out. Here I am. Um, so uh, no, not from Party City. I wish they were sometimes. Well, thank you so much for that. Um, we usually do like at the end with our guests, I like to call it like a proud plug that you talk about what you have going on or if there, there's anything you want to share with the listeners, make them aware of something that you're involved with. Do you have some uh, some projects coming up? Um, no, no. Most of the projects that I'm doing are writing right now. I'm, um, I'm working on uh, about four podcast ideas, a, um, a, that will then be turned in three of them will be turned into magazine articles, uh, pitching my first, uh, my first story to actually about, um, romantic comedies and, and the Hallmark world, um, to a magazine. And I'll, I should hear about that shortly. And then I'm also, uh, working my way through a book. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's, that's fantastic. I, you know, I've kind of taken a different during the course of the pandemic, I, I had, I started to do some different things. Um, and I started to just kind of think that I wanted to engage with the world a bit differently. And so I'm not doing as many acting jobs as I, as I used to. And I started working with, um, started working with a writer by the name of Gay Talese, who, who's many listeners probably won't know, but he's like, he's a, he was a writer that was a magazine writer and a nonfiction writer that wrote some of some really, really well-received books in the uh, 60s, 70s, and 80s. And um, then just wrote a, another book called The Voyeur Motel that they turned into a um, documentary series on Netflix. So mm. I've been doing a lot of work with him, um, but all of that stuff is all kind of behind the scenes and not necessarily something I can, <clears throat> I can plug. But I would say, uh, yeah, if for the people that haven't, go read The Delicate Moron on Sports Illustrated, where I, where I play, attempt to play professional football with a, uh, with a team owned by the band Kiss. And Gene Simmons himself called me a very attractive man of great sexual power. As he, as he well should. That's a great yeah. plug right there. That's oh, yeah. The first time I met him, he, he looked at me and he said, well, you're a very attractive man of great sexual power. I was like, <laughs> thank you. So are you, sir. <laughs> And uh, we got into this words of, uh, and uh, we, we was like, he's such a funny guy. We were like, we're talking and sort of bantering. And I was like, oh, we're, this is us playing tennis or like jousting as if we're verbally, as if we're at Versailles. And I was like, I think I said something is like, well, hey, Gene, I don't want to get bogged down in semantics here. And he says, ah, but I am not anti-semantic. And then like took this kind of like quill of a pen and kind of checked me off his list oh my God. and then lamented that like nobody was around to see his brilliance. Oh, nobody knows what this is anymore. And then we talked about football, which is a subject he knew next to nothing about. And it was like, and I was like, ah, oh, the team looks good this year. Like, oh yes. Yes. Good. Uh, yes. No. Fathers and sons, memories. It was like one of the strangest meetings of my life and then whisked me away and 
he like left this thing lingering about like how his father was was like not around for him as a kid and I was like and I didn't know quite what to do because I was like did the demon just tell me about like his and I was like trying to process and it was like how would you go like to meet Paul <laughs> it was like oh great um so yeah if you haven't read any of my writing go read that look for Neil Bledsoe Sports Illustrated The Delicate Moron it's a tale of, uh, uh, it's an eight part series about my, my futile attempt to play professional football at 35 years old after never playing at any point in my life before that. Wow, we'll have to check that yeah, out. Yeah, for real. Yeah. And it, as a family plug, go buy Bledsoe wine. It's not mine, it's from Drew Bledsoe, but uh, you know, let's make him richer, why not? <laughs> Is that really your family wine? Uh, it, it technically, I don't own any of it. Bledsoe Family Winery is the the former New England Patriots quarterback Drew Bledsoe has turned into a, a winemaker and a really really good one. Um, but he's got this thing called the Bledsoe Family Winery out in uh, Walla Walla, Washington. So yeah, and nice. then uh, gosh, besides that, uh, check me out on because I Bledsoe for you know on all my Instagram channels. So why not? Yes, where you casually read poetry sometimes. I do casually read poetry sometimes. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. <laughs> well, I, yeah, you know, there was actually just a study by, and I don't have to defend poetry to you, but there was actually just a study by NPR saying uh, how much poetry has really had kind of a moment over this past year because for two reasons. A, they're kind of very easily digestible things, but they're very like quick built, distilled bits of humanity, but also... Uh, metaphor uh, and simile and syntax, like all of those things are actually good for our mental health. What I wanted to do with the poetry stuff is like, I really wanted to, I really wanted to find great words and great language that could like really reach people. And I found such solace in poetry and I wanted to kind of do that. And I just started to get a really great response from it. And so I, and I haven't read one in a while, but I also wanted to kind of test the waters a little bit to read my own poetry that I've kind of, I've hidden from the world like Emily Neal Dickinson. So yeah, just trying to, you know, uh, to quote Fabio in, in Zoolander, I think we all have to be slashies now, right? Are you gonna be uh, sharing some of your poetry now? You've tested the waters, is that something you would like to do? Yeah, that I, you know, I'm actually a published poet. Um, and, but not, I haven't been published since I was like 20, but yeah, I've, I've written quite a bit. I mostly right now I've been working a lot in nonfiction, um, mm -hmm. just because I, the world is such a strange place. And one of my great joys, like finding connections in, uh, in scripts is to find connections in, in reality and like little bits of like one of my favorite things uh from for instance from um the, the delicate moron was at the end when you find these little bits of things that are so strange that they just have to be true yeah and the one from the end was the was that after kiss had fired the entire team and just used this as a branding exercise they they gave all their fans uh they sent them a facebook message and uh, while they were on a Kiss branded cruise that cost $10,000 to spend three days with Paul and Gene and whoever the other two people were at that given moment. And, uh, and then they launched their new product, which was a, a paper label uh, with Gene, Paul and the other two uh, and an empty plastic bag because they were selling air guitar strings. And that as a metaphor was just so perfect. And so you find those things. So, Point being is like, I, 
I have just found a lot of, I found a lot of joy in, in nonfiction and kind of yeah. in explaining the world uh, like that. But yes, working on poems, working on short stories, working on films. Uh, one time I, um, if, if you've been out to Big Sur at all, mm -mm. Uh, Henry Miller's cabin is out there and I hope I'm not butchering this but one of the he has these kind of commandments that he gives himself and one of the ones at the end is don't start any new projects <laughs> yeah I'm, I'm the same way you know you're always you're always looking at that next project right when you're in the middle you know yeah because it's easier the ideas are always easier than the execution yeah. right yeah I, I would say that the only way I know how to do it is just to keep bashing away at it until I love it exactly until it becomes like really really something and I and and to make peace with the fact that I'm deeply, a deeply untalented hack <laughs> at the beginning and like just make peace with that. And like Malcolm Gladwell said, uh, once he's like, I am not a great writer, but I might be the world's greatest rewriter. Ooh. That that is his superpower. And I was like, I like that. That's really good. Yeah. That's excellent. Yeah. Well, that's his Gladwellian 10,000 hours kicking into high gear, I guess. <laughs> Listen, you guys have been wonderful. Thank you so much for having me. No, this has been an absolute treat. And like, like I said before, we, we so much appreciate your, your honesty. Oh, right? cool. I, well, I appreciate you guys doing it. And like, w what's the point otherwise, right? Yeah. Thanks very much, guys. It was a pleasure.